0: So, let me ask you a question. How does God feel about you today? How does God feel about you today? Notice I didn't say, how do you feel about God today? Because you're, you and me, we're not the centre of the universe. God is the centre of the universe. It's his universe. And if that's the case, and I believe it is, What really matters for every one of us here today is not what you think about God, but what God thinks about you. And from chapter three, we're gonna be able to learn what God thinks about each and every one of us here today. And I'm hoping that in 25 minutes, you'll be able to know what God thinks about you today. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, And we're going to do this by looking, first of all, what John the Baptist says in the first 12 verses about the crowds that are coming out to be baptized in the wilderness of Judea. This will tell us what God thinks of people, all kinds of people. Anyone here today who's not a Christian is represented by that crowd. But secondly, and you might think rather oddly, at least at the moment, We're going to look at what God the Father says from heaven about Jesus when he comes up out of the water in verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to try and show that what God thinks about Jesus is the same as what God thinks about you if you're a Christian here today. And you can tell me in 25 minutes or so whether I've succeeded So I'm going to have two headings. First heading, how does God feel about you today if you're not a Christian? Second heading, how does God feel about you today if you are a Christian? So first heading then, if you're not a Christian, in verse 1 to 12, we see John the Baptist, God's rather eccentric prophet, speaking to the crowds. And because he's a prophet, that means that what he says is what God says. He's communicating God's word to the crowds about them. Now, just a health warning um, what I'm about to say is very countercultural. Um, it's so countercultural that I'm almost certain that in a group of this size there'll be some people who find what I say offensive. And you'll be tempted to switch off and just shut me down mentally. <laughs> Please don't do that. Please try and listen to the end. And secondly, please try and see if what I'm saying comes from the Bible. If it's what the Bible says, then the offence is at what the Bible says, not what I'm saying. If it doesn't come from the Bible, please come and show me at the end where I've gone wrong, because I only want to say what the Bible says. So how does God feel about the crowns coming for baptism? Well, probably the quickest way is to look at these Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 7. These were the most devout people in Israel. They were super serious about keeping all of God's laws. Uh, To give you two examples, firstly, God's law said that all Israelites should give a tenth of their income to support the church. They did that, but they also gave a tenth of absolutely everything including the herbs that their gardens produced mint and dill and cumin so they took the rule to the nth degree second example in the old testament god prescribed fasting only once a year on the day of atonement they fasted twice a week they were the most serious people about keeping all god's laws their high moral standards were legendary And Jesus actually used this to good effect in Matthew chapter 5. So just flick forward one page. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have been absolutely shocking to any first century Jew. Because they were the most righteous people in the most righteous nation on the planet. And Jesus is saying they're not going to get to heaven. So then what is God's assessment of the crowds? And of these Pharisees? Well look at what John says in verse 7 to the, to the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 3. And thrown into the fire. The assessment's pretty bad. God is saying through John, You Pharisees, you most devout people on the planet, God's fierce anger is coming for you, and you'd better change and quick because the judgment's imminent. The first part of verse 10 there that I just read says, Even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, God is already limbering up and deciding where he's going to strike the root of this unfruitful tree. That is the Pharisees. The fact that he's striking at the root means total destruction, not just a pruning. It's destruction, and that's very clear from verse 10. Where it says, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John then goes on to talk about who it is who's going to execute this judgment. And it's there in verse 11 and 12. He says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's talking about Jesus. And he's now switching to a second illustration, that of winnowing, there in verse 12. Now, winnowing was how you separated the precious wheat from all the other rubbish, the chaff. Back in John's day, at harvest time, you would make a pile of all the wheat and the chaff mixture outside on the threshing floor. And you'd wait for a windy day, and then you'd take a winnowing fork, which was like a special shovel, And you get a big shovel full of the mixture, throw it high in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away because it was light. And the wheat, being heavy, would fall straight back down into a nicely sorted pile. So it's a sorting of the wheat from the chaff. And John says that's what he's doing when he comes. This coming one, in verse 11 and 12, he's going to be winnowing, not wheat, but people. He's going to be separating the wheat from the chaff. And again, we've got this same note of urgency because John says his winnowing fork is in his hand. It's imminent. He's ready to start work. Just like the axe was laid at the root of the trees. And once he's finished this winnowing, this separating of peoples, he gathers his wheat into the barn. Presumably that means heaven. And the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Presumably that means hell. Yeah, the Bible here, and in many other places, is teaching the reality of heaven and hell. This is so heavy. This is so, as I've been preparing this week, I've just felt the heaviness of these kind of words. And I feel uncomfortable having to say it almost. But I, I guarantee you will never hear this on the telly. Um, not even on songs of praise. And I dare say you won't ever hear it from, or you will rarely hear it from the lips of many vicars in many Church of England around the country, or even many bishops, because it's unpalatable, and it's, it's a hard, hard message. But it needs to be said, because a horrible end awaits those who Jesus finds to be chaff on the day when he does his winnowing. Anyway, John's horrible message hits a nerve because we see in verses 5 to 6, it says Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, that is a big region, were going out to him and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Thousands came to hear John, but not just to hear, they heard and they believed. They felt the burden of their own guilt and they felt they needed some power for that guilt to be removed. And so they got baptised, they confessed their sins and they were baptised by John in water. So, how does this affect us here today? Well, you and me, in fact, everybody, we're just like the crowd. We're no different. No way are we as righteous as those Pharisees. They were the most righteous people in the most righteous nation on the planet. And yet, verse seven says, the ax is hanging over them. And Jesus himself says, they're not gonna get into heaven. And elsewhere in the Bible, it's not just here. Both the Old Testament and the New, the verdict is is the same. Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's how God sees our best righteousness. And in the New Testament, Paul can say, no one is righteous, not even one. So, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and if Matthew chapter 3 is God's word, which I truly believe it is, it means that you're in trouble. Our culture insistently reaffirms that we are all basically good. It's a kind of mantra. It doesn't matter what our culture says. God says we are all unrighteous. Without exception, all humanity The word is sinners, it's not a popular word. Rebels it means, rebels against God, both by nature and by practice. And therefore God, as is seen in chapter 3, is rightly, deeply angry with us. And his winnowing fork is in his hand and he is going to judge. Now, if you're not a Christian, and if you're still with me, You'll most likely be feeling a strong temptation to forget about everything I've just said. Dismiss it because it's so unpleasant and hard to hear. Brush it off and get back on with your life and forget it ever happened. I think we all have an inbuilt tendency to very much want it not to be true. Because if it is true, it's really, really bad. Can I plead with you that if that's you, Please, don't bury what I've just said. Please, for the sake of your own eternal well-being, will you investigate the Christian faith like Noah and Jonathan have done and have become persuaded that it is true. I've been persuaded that it's true for the last 35 years since university. And if you do want to investigate more. At the back there are some copies of this book called The Gift and it explains the basic truth of the Christian message and it's a gift so it's free. So just take one and go away and read it if that describes you if you're not a Christian. That's how God feels about the non-Christian and it's pretty grim but remember I had Another heading, and this one is briefer and it's as positive as the last heading was negative. How does God feel about you if you're a Christian? In verse 13 of chapter 3, John gets a huge surprise. Jesus, the one that John knows is this coming judge, the one with the axe, the one who's doing the winnowing, that one comes Along with all the other sinners to be baptized. Verse thirteen says, "Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him." Now, notice what it doesn't say by comparing it with verse six. In verse six, it says, "Of the crowds they were baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." For Jesus, it says, came to be baptised. It doesn't say confessing his sins. Jesus comes for baptism, nothing to confess. There's no sin for him to confess. And John knows it. And that's why John was so uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus came. Because in verse 14, he tries to stop Jesus being baptised because it's so out of place. And he says, I need to be baptized by you? And do you come to me? In other words, are you out of your mind? You're not a sinner. And this is a baptism for sinners. What are you doing? John knew that Jesus was this coming judge. So how can it make any sense for the judge himself to flee from the coming wrath when the wrath is his wrath? It doesn't make any sense for the judge to flee from the wrath to come, that is his own wrath. And Jesus doesn't really explain to John. He just says in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Very mysterious thing to say. I think he's saying you can't understand what's happening right now. Just trust me, it's the right thing to do. And John is persuaded and he baptises a Son of God, the eternal Son of God, a second person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the person that he baptizes in the Jordan, the Son from all eternity, who's become man and has become a sinless man. So he baptizes him. And we know that Jesus has no sin because verse 16 and 17 Make it absolutely clear. And this is the bit I want us to focus on. Verse 16, after Jesus comes up out of the water, just like Jonathan did, and standing there. It says, behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom... I'm well pleased. God the Father from heaven sends his own Holy Spirit to rest upon God the Son and affirms him with the words, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now he's been well pleased with him for all eternity because he's the eternal Son of God, he's the second person. Of the Trinity, and the Father perfectly has loved the Son, and the Son has perfectly loved the Father for all eternity. Of course, he's well pleased with him. So Jesus is the only person ever who's well pleasing to the Father in and of himself. Nobody else is. The rest of us were all sinners. Jesus alone is the only person. He never sinned. He's the only person who didn't deserve the tongue lashing that everybody else got from John. He's the only person who didn't need John's baptism of repentance for the, for the forgiveness of sins, because he had no sins that needed forgiving. He's the only person who lived a life of absolute perfection, of perfect love for the Heavenly Father, and perfect love his neighbour. Not a kind of grudging um, law-keeping, but a delight in God's law, a delight in doing his Father's will from cradle to grave. Perfect man, and the only person ever to merit a place in heaven on his own performance. So, what was really going on that day? John clearly struggled to grasp it. Why did Jesus come to be baptized by John? Well, I've become convinced in my studies that it works like this Jesus comes to be baptized by John to identify himself completely with sinners. Sinners are coming to be baptized. Jesus comes to be baptized not to confess. Not to confess sin, but because he intends to be their representative before God. He identifies with sinners in his baptism in water by John in the Jordan. But, did you know, Jesus was baptised twice. First time in the Jordan, second time on the cross. Jesus says so himself. Um, He's on his last journey up to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. And he refers to the cross as a baptism. It's in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. You don't need to turn to it. But he says this. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. His death on the cross is a baptism. By full immersion, like that one but not full immersion in water, full immersion into the wrath and anger of God, his Father. Just turn forward to Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is on the cross and he's about to die. Verses 45 to 46, it's on page 1006. And bear in mind the verdict of God the Father at Jesus' baptism this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased so on the cross immediately before he dies Matthew 27 verse 45 now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour that's midday to 3pm about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying Eli Eli Lema sabachthani that is my God my God why have you forsaken me And then, a few verses later, he breathed his last. He died. So Jesus experiences on the cross the judgment of God. Darkness in the Bible almost always represents judgment. And three hours of darkness fall as Jesus hangs on the cross. And in that time, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the fury of God at sin is being poured out on the eternal son of god the well-pleasing son that's why jesus cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me because he's dying the death of the god forsaken sinner that we deserve god the son dies forsaken by god the father Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, God forsaken by God, who can fathom it? Today we've witnessed Christian baptism. And by being baptised in water, Nur and Jonathan are publicly identified with Jesus, saying, I want to be his, I want to be his disciple. They have identified with him at the Jordan. He came to be baptised. And they're saying, I want to be baptised too. They identify with him at the Jordan in his first baptism. And so he identifies with them at Calvary on the cross in his second baptism. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus on the cross bears the wrath of God in our place. And by being baptized, you're saying, I want that to be true for me. I want to be delivered. From the wrath of God that I deserve. And if you recognise your need of that kind of a saviour, Jesus is willing to be your saviour. Like the little book says, it's it's a gift. He stands ready, willing and able. All you have to do is ask and it's a gift. And he's willing to stand in for you totally. It's a total identification. In the sight of the Father, Jesus lived this perfect life of perfect loving obedience. From cradle to grave. If he identifies with you, if he represents you, that perfect life becomes yours. God considers that you've lived a perfect life. And he treats that perfect life as if it was yours. And if Jesus identifies with you totally, then on the cross, he takes your guilt upon himself. He takes the condemnation that that brings. He earns it for you. So there's no more guilt or condemnation for you. In fact, if you're truly a Christian, and I close with this, the identification is so complete that God looks at you and sees his beloved Son. So, Noah and Jonathan, can't see Jonathan, I can see Noah. Um, God looks at you now as someone who's in Christ. It means eternally, inseparably, organically, mysteriously joined to His beloved Son for all eternity and therefore well pleasing to God for all eternity. There is no condemnation for you, because it fell on Christ at Calvary. This is the Christian Gospel, and it's amazing. So God can look at you and say, this is my beloved son or daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray.